Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. We're going to be doing something a little different this morning. Brian has asked me <laughs> to give an excursus on Presbyterian election law due to our elections, and that would be terrible. If you have trouble sleeping, call Brian sometime at night, and I'm sure he could talk with you for a while. And now, anything I'm going to say is going to be so much more interesting now that we're, we're not actually doing that, right? Uh, no, we're, we're uh, very excited to have some elections later on this morning, but um, we are going to continue through our study of the Gospel of Luke. And this morning we're getting to a pretty pivotal passage, so I'm going to read that for us and pray, and we'll jump right in. This is the Gospel reading from Luke chapter 9. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are unable to accomplish Um, our task this morning in our own strength. We do not have the mental abilities, the spiritual insight, or the emotional intelligence to truly discern who you are. And yet that is the question that you demand of each of us. Who do we say that you are? As we will see in a moment, it requires prayer. We require your spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds to give us a clear picture of Jesus. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be in this place this morning giving us that vision, giving us that revelation, that picture. Light up our hearts this morning that we may see Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. As I said, we're looking this morning at a a fairly pivotal passage in Luke's gospel. And this is sort of, we're kind of almost on a cusp here in his narrative. And from here on out, the ministry of Jesus, which has been somewhat broad throughout Israel, is going to take a laser-like focus as he directs himself toward Jerusalem. And what we just read is the big reveal, this big central moment in Luke's storytelling. And it's important for us to kind of step back and keep in mind what Luke is doing because he tells us at the beginning of this gospel that his purpose for writing is to give an investigated, orderly account of who Jesus is. And and really what Luke is doing over his gospel account and the book of Acts is giving us an, an idea of what took place in the development of this new movement called The Way, this movement that had all sorts of outlandish claims about a rabbi named Jesus. And so this, this first part of his two-part series, The Gospel According to Luke, is an investigation into who Jesus is. And so we're going to look at this account this morning by looking at the question, the preconception, and the Christ. Many of you may remember the movie The Usual Suspects. 
The Usual Suspects was sort of in this neo-noir tradition, and it follows the fates of this really ragtag team of criminals. And the plot sort of kind of winds in and out with flashback and really creative storytelling. Um, And you, you kind of start at the end where this big boat explosion has left all sorts of people dead and and law enforcement agents are sort of wondering what's going on here. Certainly there was some sort of drug deal, some sort of criminal underworld at play. And as you go through the movie, you kind of learn bits and pieces of how you actually get to that boat explosion. But really, the movie is not about this team of criminals. The central point of this entire film is trying to answer the question, who is Kaiser Soze? Kaiser Soze is a man surrounded by legend. He's one of the fiercest criminal bosses who has become such an icon in the criminal underworld that many people believe that he's not even really a person. He's just one of these stories to keep criminals from sleeping at night because they never know if he's on their team or not. Kaiser Soze is so fierce. He's so much larger than life that throughout the whole movie you're wondering, is he real? Which character is he? And I'm I'm not going to give away the end, but the whole time you're guessing, who is Kaiser Soze? Is it a myth? Is it Gabriel Byrne's character? Is it Stephen Baldwin's character or Benicio Del Toro's character? And every time the question gets asked in the movie, the mystery grows deeper and more pressing until you're on the edge of your seat. And they leave you to the very end to figure out the answer. Now Luke is a historian, and he's also a brilliant, brilliant storyteller. Throughout his account of Jesus' life, he has been raising the question through his characters over and over again, who is this Jesus? Just like the usual suspects, the mystery grows more and more pressing every time it's asked. And so as Luke is setting up sort of this central question to his gospel about the identity of Jesus, he has two sets of characters There are human beings, and there are supernatural beings. And through the supernatural characters in Luke's gospel, Luke is actually giving us an idea of his own view about Jesus. But these characters that are supernatural, angels, God, demons, they all identify Jesus accurately. Angels declare Jesus' identity at his birth. God identifies Jesus as his son at his baptism. Even Satan himself refers to Jesus as the son of God, when he comes to tempt him. But the human characters generally have no idea what's going on. All they have is questions. And early on in Luke's gospel, the crowds come to John the Baptist and they say, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Basically, he says no, and we're going to circle back to that scene in a moment because we'll find that it's very important. But from that From that section in Luke chapter 3, when the crowd comes to John the Baptist, and our section this morning in Luke chapter 9, over and over and over again, Luke is asking us to deal with the question, who is Jesus? Jesus goes to his hometown, and all of the neighbors that he grew up with say, isn't this Joseph's son? Why should we listen to this guy? When Jesus performs an exorcism in Capernaum, the crowds exclaim, who is this who with authority and power commands unclean spirits, and they obey him. When Jesus heals a paralytic and then verbally forgives him of his sins, the religious leaders ask, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who could forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus raises a young man from the dead, the crowd shouts, a great prophet has arisen among us. Even John the Baptist 
as he languishes in prison, he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, who are you? Are you the one who was to come or are we looking for another? As we saw a few weeks ago, as Jesus was being anointed and caressed by the sinful woman at Simon the Pharisee's house, Simon is questioning in his own heart, if this guy was really a prophet, wouldn't he know what sort of woman this is that's touching him? And then when Jesus is there and he declares that woman to be forgiven, the crowd at the house asks again, who is this that thinks he can forgive sins? When the disciples are with Jesus out on a boat and they're overcome with fear as this storm comes crashing in upon them, Jesus rises and commands the water and the wind to be still. And it happens. And the disciples are even more afraid. And they say, who is this? that even winds and waves obey him. When Herod Antipas, the political leader in that region, hears about what Jesus is doing, his first question, who is this about whom I hear such things? And it's at the end of this long line of questioning through all of these characters, all of humanity has this question about the identity of Jesus that we now come to the question that Jesus poses to his disciples and their response. And so Luke is is signaling to us that something major is about to happen. Just like in The Usual Suspects, as you've been waiting and waiting and waiting, at the very end comes the big reveal. So in this section of Luke, beginning in Luke 3 and ending in Luke 9, after all of these repeated questions of who is Jesus, we get to the very end, and Luke's going to give us the answer. Luke also signals to us in another way that this is something very, very important because he tells us that Jesus was apart praying. And in our translation, it seems a little bit strange that he's praying in private and yet with his disciples. But what Luke is driving at is that Jesus has been surrounded by crowds for much of his ministry. And he's finally pulling away with his closest followers and he's set apart in prayer. He's settling his soul. He is meeting with his father. Now, just like many of us, have been, have been trained unawares. When we hear a story or we read a book that starts with, it was a dark and stormy night, we know to expect something sinister is afoot, right? So in Luke's account, whenever we read, and Jesus went to pray, something huge is about to happen. Jesus prayed before his baptism, He prayed before entering the wilderness for his temptation that would lead into his preaching ministry. Jesus prayed before calling his disciples and before choosing those 12 closest followers that he would have. For Luke, prayer, whether it's the prayer of Jesus or other characters in the narrative, is an active reliance on God's intervention. Prayer is not some afterthought, something tacked on at the end. Prayer is the jumpstart. It's the planning session for the big move that's about to take place. So the fact that Jesus is praying right before he asks his disciples these questions should signal to us something huge is about to happen. And the two questions that Jesus asks are going to be our next two points. But really, they're doing more than just that. They're they're signaling to us the difference between crowds and disciples. Crowds follow preconceptions. Disciples follow Christ. Jesus says, who do the crowds say that I am? The disciples answer, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago 
has come back to life. We'll look at each of these preconceptions that the the crowds have of Jesus quickly before turning to look at some of our own. And we're going to work a little bit backwards here. So we'll start with one of the prophets come back to life. Why why is the, the nation of Israel so obsessed with having some sort of prophet leader that could come and help them out? Well, in the book of the law, the, the book that we have as the first five books of our Christian scriptures, this was the sort of corpus of, of Israel's social and religious life. It was the books that Moses wrote. And in those books, at the, towards the very end, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses, the, the greatest prophet that Israel had ever known, the prophet that led them out of slavery in Egypt into the land of promise, tells them that one day, a prophet greater than he is going to rise up among God's people. And so as God's people entered exile, they latch onto this promise that one day there will be a prophet like Moses who is going to lead us out of exile, is going to lead us back into freedom, back into the land of promise, back into God's blessing, vindication. But others say that he was Elijah, now, some religious teachers taught that what Malachi was doing at, at the end of, of Israel's sort of exilic period, as Malachi is writing to people that have been uh, thrust out of the land, he tells them that one day Elijah will come back before the great day of the Lord. Elijah will rise up and lead God's people. Elijah was a w- miracle-working prophet in the Old Testament. And so the, the crowds have been kind of conditioned to await with this certain expectation that God is going to do something. He's going to intervene in their lives through a prophet like Moses or like Elijah. But we also see an answer to Jesus' question about the crowd's preconceptions. Some of the people are still confusing Jesus with John the Baptist. As I've been saying, Luke has been setting us up for this moment, this this big reveal for us to see the identity of Jesus. And so really what he's done is he's set up bookends around this whole stretch of narrative of questioning Jesus' identity. And our passage this morning is the final bookend. The first bookend takes place in Luke chapter 3. And in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is baptizing the people of Israel, and he's preaching a message of repentance. And the crowds come to him and they say, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ, the one that we've been waiting for, the anointed? And John's answer to the crowd serves as that first bookend, and it it really launches that journey of questioning Jesus' identity until now. And by linking these two accounts together as bookends, what Luke is doing is shattering the crowd's preconceptions of Jesus' identity. The, The crowds want to say that Jesus is a prophet and nothing more. Now, this is not to say that Luke does not agree that Jesus is a prophet. In fact, Christian uh, theologians have for centuries seen Jesus as filling the role of prophet. In fact, he is the fulfillment, the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, that prophet that would be greater than Moses that would rise up, the prophet of Israel par excellence. But rather, what Luke is trying to get us to realize is that the answer that John gives to the crowd is the answer that we simply must have regarding Jesus' identity, that Jesus is Yes, filling the role of a prophet, but he is not on par with John, Moses, Elijah, or any of the other prophets. He is not even just the greatest of the prophets. He is qualitatively different. He is so much greater, John tells the crowd, that I am unworthy even to untie his sandal. 
He is so much greater, John says, that though I baptize you with water, he will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. He is so much greater, John says, I was simply sent to preach repentance. And yet this one that will come, the one that is the true Messiah, will be the judge of all the earth, all the living, all the dead. No other prophet has even come close to that status. You see, the crowds wanted a leader that would address their needs, or at least their needs as they saw them. As long as Jesus limited himself to solving their problems, they were happy. But the second he stepped outside of what they thought was their problem and started meddling in other areas of their lives, we're going to find out soon enough in Luke's gospel that they're going to create a pretty big stir. And we're really not that different, are we? We could look at many other sectors of our society outside of the church, perhaps our Muslim neighbors, who have a pretty similar preconception of Jesus as the crowds in his own day, that he was a great prophet, but nothing more. Perhaps our well-educated co-workers who view Jesus as more myth than man. Perhaps even some of us here are wrestling through cluttered stories and it's in sort of a weird history We see Jesus as a good man who had good ideas that got co-opted by some sweeping religious movement, and Jesus has been long buried behind all the trappings of Christianity. But it's not simply those at the outskirts of faith that have preconceptions about Jesus. Those of us within the church have our own preconceptions, and the nature of preconceptions is that they are elusive. We don't think about them. We assume things. And so it would behoove us to take time to make sure that we are thinking of Christ rightly, that we are answering his question, who do you say that I am, rightly. You see, some of us have a Jesus that is far more concerned with sexual orientation than he is with greed. Others of us have a Jesus that cares far more about the oppression of the poor than he does about what goes on in our bedroom. Some of us have a Jesus that is really only concerned with saving souls and has little concern about the physical world, whether it be our bodies, creation, or other physical things. Others of us have a Jesus that is far more enamored with rainforests than he is with spiritual and emotional health. Some of us have a Jesus that is so wed to American nationalism that we don't even realize that we are cutting off the value of other people in other countries because we have so assumed that our religion is so matched with our nation. National interests, national security takes priority over other people. Others of us have a Jesus that is very much wed to a certain economic system, whether it resembles socialism or capitalism. Many of us have so syncretized Jesus and Christianity and democracy, that we are absolutely unable to distinguish between them. Friends, the crowd follow preconceptions. And there is a singular commonality that the non-Christian in the crowd and many Christians in the crowd share. In each of their conceptions of Jesus, they remain at the center of the story, not him. You see that in saying that Jesus was just a good guy, but he wasn't God, he wasn't Savior, and saying that Jesus came to fix your individual problem but doesn't have a broader agenda is essentially saying the same thing. You, as the individual, are the arbiter. You are the decider of who Jesus is and what he's about. 
you were at the center, not only of your own world, but apparently of Jesus' world as well. Jesus' identity and by extension his mission is then determined in terms of you and what you want. It's like we're children jumping from a bed to a dresser telling Jesus he can't go on the floor because it's hot lava. Did you ever play that game? Okay. Making sure it's not just me here. The kind of Christianity that many of us can easily fall prey to is outlined in Christian Smith's research on youth and religion. Smith and his research team interviewed thousands of teenagers in America about religion and their spiritual beliefs. And in the course of his research, and as it's kind of been several years since that's taken place, he started to realize, and other researchers have started to realize, that the way that these teenagers talked about religion and faith and society is really not something that they're just getting out of thin air. It's not something they're getting from school. It's something really that they're getting from their families, from their parents. And so what started as a study about teenagers kind of developed into a study of Americans in general. And the result of Smith's study is called moralistic therapeutic deism. Perhaps you've heard the term before. And basically what has resulted from Smith's research is that we see this is basically de facto American Christianity, moralistic therapeutic deism. And here are the basic tenets. There is a God who created and ordered the world, and he is watching over human life. God exists. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, which is taught in the Bible. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And finally, good people go to heaven when they die. I bet that most of us in this room would not put that down on paper as our faith, as the tenets of our religion. And yet I think many of us would be very dismayed to find that our life, our daily life, if it were written down and codified, would look very, very, very similar to moralistic therapeutic deism. And this is the crux. If life is about me being happy, then the basic mission of Jesus is conceived as him leveraging his powers as God to fix my problems. You see that? If life is mostly about me being happy, all of us live this way. Then we conceive as Jesus' identity as leveraging his powers as God to fix my problems. And we wonder, there are so many articles written about how teens and youth and college students leave the church, and we wonder why. Well, here's why. If my problems go unfixed, and this is my understanding of the gospel, then Jesus is obviously not who he said he was. Because his whole purpose is to make me happy. It's to fix my problems. This is the preconception of the crowd. But after Jesus hears from his disciples regarding the crowd's conception of him, he turns the question on them. And he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? You see, being a disciple instead of part of the crowd, isn't about trying harder. It's a posture of humility. 
It's an intentional move away from the center of your life. And to answer this question as a disciple requires a posture of prayer. Do you notice the prayer that we say every week together, the Lord's Prayer, begins with statements about God and his kingdom and his kingship? That should signal to us that we are not actually in charge. We are not actually the king of our own life. Prayer is a posture of humility. And what Luke signals to us in telling us that Jesus prayed before asking the disciples this question, Matthew makes explicit in his telling of this story in his gospel. Jesus is praying so that his father will reveal to Peter and the rest of the disciples his true identity. The implication is that you simply cannot conceive of Jesus on your own. You must be humble enough to be given the answer, to be given revelation, because it is only in moving yourself out of the center of your own life that you can say with Peter, you are God's Messiah. To say that Jesus is Messiah or Christ is to say that he is an anointed one. In Jewish culture, this would often refer to a priest or a king, one who had been anointed and set apart for a certain purpose. But Luke's telling us more than just that in Peter's response. He's telling us that Jesus is the Christ of God. He's God's anointed, and that's not just a possessive, like he's the anointed that belongs to God, but he's the anointed that is found in God. His entire identity is ground and rooted in God's identity. And this is getting to the very heart of what it means to identify Jesus as Christ rather than your own preconception. He is the anointed of God. God is on mission. God is the actor. God is the initiator. God is the anointer. God is at the center of the universe. God is working out reconciliation, and he is doing all of this through Jesus, through his anointed. Peter's short statement is the kernel that would blossom into the Christology of the early church, a statement of which we are going to read uh, together later as we confess our faith. This is the big moment, the big reveal. Peter makes his way into the greatest mystery of the world because of God's revelation that Jesus, a man, is God's Christ, God's Messiah, God's anointed, the one tasked with bringing about the mission of God on earth. I imagine that this is probably the moment that every Jewish child dreamed of, being the first one to see it, being there at that very moment when God's work in the world is being revealed. As the disciples had been following Jesus for months, they probably had whispered to each other after he fell asleep at night, wondering if he really was the one. Was it worth giving up everything we had to follow him? They're wondering if they had bet on the right guy or not. Maybe this one wouldn't even make it out of the primaries. And as they had these sort of inexpressible dreams about who Jesus could be, they, they, they were probably envisioning a conversation, maybe similar to the one that's recorded for us in Luke this morning, where it finally comes out, clear as day, that Jesus is Christ. He is the Messiah. And now the planning for the new world begins. Now we're all going to figure out our cabinet positions. The new regime commences. All the dreams of vindication are finally coming true. And we were there. We were the ones there at the ground floor. All the hopes of throwing off the power of others is about to be realized. And so when Peter kind of blurts out 
this confirmation that Jesus is indeed the one, the Christ, you can almost sense all of the disciples leaning in close to hear what Jesus is going to say next, because this is the big moment. What will this wonderful new kingdom be like? Because after all, if Jesus really is the Christ, then he is the center of everything. Whatever his mission is, the disciples are about ready to hear it, and they know that if he is truly God's Messiah, they must follow him no matter what that mission is. And so they lean in with expectation, and the very next words out of Jesus' mouth could not have done more to deflate and confuse and scandalize these closest of followers. Christ shatters preconceptions. And I really am going to do it. You're going to have to come back next week to find out. You're going to have to come back next week to find out what is Jesus the anointed for? What are his followers called to follow him into? And I guarantee you, no matter how many times you have read the Christian story, this answer is still going to shock all of us. The truth is, Jesus is Christ's anointed, and that changes everything. And next week, we're going to look at what exactly that means. Let's pray together. Jesus, it is a mysterious thing that you are the long-awaited Messiah. It's one of those mysteries that it seems the, the further we go, the deeper we climb into it, the darker it becomes, the cloudier it becomes, and and we're left with more questions than answers. And yet, as you have made clear by your life and your death and your resurrection, you are God's Messiah. You are the king of this world. I ask that as we come to your table that you would recenter us in who you are, that we would be given grace again and again as your people. We ask this in your name. Amen.